be with you this morning. I want to invite you to grab a Bible. Hopefully you brought one. If you did not, there should be some Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. We're going to continue our series in 1 Samuel, and we'll be in chapter 12 this morning. If you did pick up one of those Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, we refer to those as our pew Bibles, even though we have chairs. And you can find this passage on page 233 of the, of the pew Bible. And thinking about the chairs, uh, I know Troy, if you could hear him at the beginning, was mentioning uh, that we have chairs coming. And I just want to take a moment. If you look around at these beautiful chairs, um, this, these that we have currently were a gift to us. There are a hundred more on a trailer outside, which we are going to invite anyone who is able to help unload after service. But all of those chairs, I don't know how many that is at this point, are a gift or were gifts from Rocky Point Baptist Church in Stephenville. Generously, the elders gathered, the congregation agreed, and they have gifted us this first set when we moved out our pews and renovated and now to add more. And so we're so very, very thankful for the Lord using other local churches, healthy local churches, to care for one another, to provide for one another. So if you know anybody at Rocky Point, uh, Jeff Dyke is the pastor out there. Just want to tell them thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts here at Grace Covenant Church. And then also, uh, most of you are aware that my father-in-law passed away last week. Sorry. <laughs> and... Uh, just on behalf of the family, uh, we want to thank you, uh, the body of Christ, praying for us, supporting us. Um, John Duty believed in our risen Savior, and uh, so we are reminded from God's Word, we do not grieve as others who do not have hope, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We, we love you guys, and... Uh, as, as believers in Christ, you have to understand that this is not man's idea. Brothers and sisters gathering weekly to sit under the word and proclaim the gospel to one another and what happens day to day as we are caring for one another, this is God's ordained plan to provide for his people, to care for his people and uh, just know that the Lord is using you as instruments in his hands for us this week. All right, let's, uh, let's look at God's word, shall we? Um, so hopefully you found 1 Samuel chapter 12. And please follow along as I read from God's word. In your Bibles, you may see kind of a header, Samuel's Farewell Address. We are seeing a transition within the leadership of Israel from what was once judges being raised up by God now to a monarchy where Saul is established as the first king. And so please follow along as I read from God's word. As, and Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now... Behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? 
Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. The, col- the whole congregation, they said, you have not defrauded us or oppre- oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron And brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazar, and into the land of the Philistines, and into the land of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubiel and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, from whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty." For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you 
and I will instruct you in the good and, right, and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Hear the word of the Lord. Once again, there is a lot in this chapter that we find from God's word, and we're going to do our best to, to hit the highlights, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would help apply God's word to our hearts. What we see kind of an overview in this chapter is uh, God's ways being put on display, God's ways being governed and guided, guided by His infinite sovereignty in all that happens, His infinite wisdom, His infinite righteousness, His infinite wrath, His infinite grace, and the infinite worth of His great name. All throughout this chapter, who God is, how mighty and awesome and worthy of praise is put on display. And it is a reminder to the people. You see, hopefully in the handout today, the title is Stand Still and See, the title of this sermon. We all need to be shaken and, and reminded to, to stand still and see who God is who we are in light of our grievous sin towards a holy and right God. And the hope and aim is to move us towards repentance and renewing our allegiance to the one true king. The people needed to be reminded once again, stand still and see. First, in an interesting way, Samuel begins with his ministry. His ministry and what God has done for his people will end up vindicating God and indicting the people. So he, he begins in such a way to shed light on their sin, their great wickedness. And so he rehearses for them what he has done as their leader. And what's interesting is we, we read earlier in 1 Samuel, God telling Samuel, when they asked for a king like all the nations, Samuel, they were not rejecting you, but they were rejecting me. And he tells Samuel, go on and tell them exactly what this is going to look like. And so Samuel explains, and the theme of that ex explanation is really this, a king like all the nations, a king's going to take He's going to take and take from you. And what Samuel lays out in his ministry to the people of Israel is not one of taking from them, but serving them faithfully. And so much so that he makes them basically acknowledge this publicly. It is true. What you have said is right. You have not taken from us, but you have, you have faithfully served us. That vindication really is not to make much of Samuel, it is to make much of God, who placed Samuel there for such a time as that to lead the people. And then we see Samuel moving on. Um, a per another purpose of the way that he begins is to give witness to who God is, his righteous acts, 
the Lord as witness, Samuel elaborates on all that God has done, his faithfulness to Israel. So picking up in verse 6, and Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness. And he goes and he begins to explain just a historical sketch of God's righteous leading and provision for the people of Israel. Again, I want you to see that it happens two times in this passage, in this chapter. Stand still. Listen to what I'm about to say to you. I want to declare to you the righteous deeds of God. And so in verses 6 through 11, looking at those verses, Samuel is laying out before the people the faithfulness of their divine king. There was no need for a king to be raised up like the nations. God was their deliverer. And here's the theme of Israel's history, and really it marks the, the, the history of, of the people of God. It is crisis, a cry for help, deliverance. Crisis, a cry for help, and God delivering. God delivering through raising up leadership that he has placed, Moses and Aaron, the judges, all the way up to Samuel, letting the people know all that has transpired has been done according to his righteous rule over their lives. And I want you to notice, we read it, it's in those few chapters, 6 through, a seven, six through 11, that we also see the people of God being oppressed. We see them going through very difficult times. And this is all included in the righteous rule of God. I don't want us to miss this. His dealings with Israel were righteous in every way. He has fulfilled his promises of deliverance, giving them the land that they would dwell in, even when there is those points of oppression. He wants them to know that it was God still acting righteously in punishing Israel for their wickedness. The, the hope would always be to lead them to repentance, to cry out to the only one who can save. Thinking about the promises of deliverance, the promises of the land, in Joshua chapter 21, verse 45, we get to hear how God has provided for his people. It says this, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Samuel is wanting the people to see this very clearly. There was no need for you to cry out for a king like all the nations. God has been your righteous king. And what was their response? Verse 12. We were introduced to this wicked ruler of the Ammonites in chapter 11, Nahash. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, Samuel, they said to Samuel, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. You can only imagine hearing the, the disbelief in Samuel's voice. You asked for a king like the nations when God was your king. The Lord had already told them, obey, this is in chapter 8, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. 
In all of this, Samuel is exposing their guilt, really shedding light on the, the grievous nature of their sin, of choosing a king instead of God, their Lord, their Redeemer, their Maker. And in verse 17, this is defined for us as a great wickedness. This was a great wickedness, what the people of Israel had done. So the fact that Israel had kings, when you think about the history, Saul's the first, this is owing to their sin. It was a horrible sin for the people to say, no, God, we choose a man. We want to be like the nations. We do not want you to be our king. It really is that stark. It's that wicked. And, and also, it was, it was a defining mark of, of turning away from the only one who can truly satisfy, who can truly redeem, who can truly give you all that you need. And a good summation is actually found in this chapter. I want you to skim down to verse 21. This is kind of a, a summation of, of all other options outside of the Lord your God. Samuel says, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Wherever we turn that is outside of God as our complete satisfaction, complete um, provision, complete joy and delight, we need to hear. This is, this is a, tr a truth that I pray if, you, if everything else kind of falls to the ground, you cling to this. Any other option will run dry. It is a broken cistern. The water will just flood out and you think you can hold it for a while and it will run dry. It will, it, is, it will empty out. It will never truly satisfy. And Samuel, through this whole chapter, is wanting again and again to point their gaze to the one who does. The righteous king who was always there if they would just repent and submit. As the passage unfolds before us, we see God's infinite sovereignty even over this grievous sin. So I, I don't want us to miss this. I want to make sure we see this. They wanted a king like all the nations. Saul is eventually identified, and he is the one made king. But this was not just of their doings. Yes, the motive of their hearts was wicked, but we need to hear even from the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, 20 through 22, it makes it clear that it was God who gave Israel their first king. God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, God raised up David to be their king. And so we see this repeated throughout the great wickedness of man in human history. What man meant for evil, God meant it for good. As you think about Saul and then David being raised up as the king, and who comes from the line of David? God's overarching plan ultimately is to bring glory to his son, the king of kings. 
So what man meant for evil, God is working through it all, orchestrating his ultimate decree to provide the king of kings to, for, for, for all eternity to reign and rule his people. Looking then at verses 14 through 18, Samuel is alerting the people of Israel to the seriousness of their sin. Like, it is climbing towards uh, an apex here in this miracle that is about to be put on display. In verse 14, he says, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. You can just feel it mounting towards this apex. Samuel is wanting, to see, wanting them to see the wickedness of their sin, the seriousness of their sin. And so we hear this miracle. It begins with the question, is is it not wheat harvest today, and then God's miraculous thunder and rain pouring down? Now, for us, we may just kind of gloss over this and be like, interesting, it probably was a time where it didn't rain much, and that's exactly right, but you got to understand, during these dry months, this would be kind of the, the, the May, June, the beginning of the dry season, this was unheard of. So, my father-in-law grew up in McAllen, Texas, the valley deep south. This would be like on the 4th of July in McAllen, Texas, a snowstorm hits. It would be that alarming, alerting. This is, this is something that would grab their attention, and it led to fear of God. This was so uncommon. Only God gets the credit for this display. And it was for the people to be aware just how serious their sin was before a holy and righteous God. Only when God's people see their sin from his perspective is there any hope for true repentance and change. Last week, I had the privilege of teaching our uh, week two of Foundations class, and in that class, I shared this quote from George Swinnock, or Swinnock. Uh, I don't think I said it any different. Swinnock. He's a Puritan. George uh, and I want you to hear what he says in this description about sin towards a holy God. Sin is an injury to the great and glorious God. The better the object is, the baser the action that, in, that injures it. Making a flaw in a common stone is not as bad as making a flaw in a precious stone. The object's worth heightens and aggravates the offense. How horrid, then, is our sin? It does not oppose rulers, the highest of humans, or angels, the highest of creatures, but God, the highest of beings. He is the incomparable God, in comparison to whom the whole creation is less than nothing." We perceive the size of sin to be too small 
when we only measure it by the wrong that it does to us, our families, or our neighbors. Sin does affect those around you, and it is hard and horrible, but it is nothing compared to the sin against God. Indeed, we see something of its evil and its effects upon these things, but we only perceive its full size when we consider the wrong it does towards the incomparable God. Sin is always against God first and foremost. David in Psalm 51.4 says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Stand still and see. You may think of your sin in this category of, it's not that bad when I compare it to other people who are on death row for doing horrific sins. Brothers and sisters, all who are listening, you're, you're comparing it to your, your value and scale of, of sin. You need to understand what it is in light of a holy and righteous God. You have sinned against Him and Him alone. And because of your sin, we, our sin, we all deserve His punishment and wrath. That is justice. That's not where the story ends. There is great hope for sinners because of what Christ has done for us. God sending his son because of how great our sin is. The eternal son of God left heaven and came to earth because of how serious our sin is. The eternal son of God lived a perfect life because of how serious our sin is, died the death that we deserve because of how serious our sin is, and on the third day, God raised him from the dead because of how serious our sin is. Fear of God's righteous wrath seems to open the way for repentance, does it not, in this passage? Stand still and see and watch God's anger be put on display in this storm so that you may just get a glimpse at how holy and awesome He is and how serious your sin is before Him. Now, you may go, man, this is, this fear talk, this is Old Testament judgment of God. We don't see that in the, in the New Testament. Being motivated by the fear of God, but we do. Just an example, one example, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, we hear verse 5 and verse 6, and I want you to listen to them. He writes this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put those sins to death. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. If God grants us a sight of our own sin and his displeasure of it, it is not just to lead us to live in fear and trembling and, and stay in that state. No, the severity of God's wrath and the understanding of the kindness of God actually leads us to repentance. God intends fear to work in such a way 
in our lives to lead to obedience, to lead to faithfulness, to lead to a life of ongoing repentance and striving to live in a manner that pleases him. From John Newton's Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, verse 18, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. After the miracle displayed, the people repent. I think it's important for us to think just for a moment about this repentance. This repentance is not a, a, a redo. They can't change the past. They have chosen a king. That has happened. Now, it's interesting how this unfolds because Samuel directs them, both you and your king, now walk this way. If this is true repentance, now do this. They shouldn't have desired a king like all the nations, but they are here and they are here now, and God calls them to obey. God calls them to turn from the way that they were going. You can't change the past, but you now live in the present, and you are called to walk it out in a different way than you did before. So God takes you from where you are, not where you have been. Repentance, it actually changes the present for us. When we turn from going the direction that led down the path of death and turning back towards God and saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I want to walk in a way that you have called us to walk, that, that change is, is present. It is now. And for those of us who find ourselves in this spiral of despair, of despair, constantly rehearsing sins of old in our lives, and it just spirals down towards depression, we need to be reminded here of this passage. Stand still and see the seriousness of your sin. And this call to repentance is a call for active obedience now in the present. You have done this, but what Samuel is about to unfold for the people of God is grace upon grace. We see in verse 20, Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. This, this is amazing. This almost looks like it's a misprint. You should be afraid because you have done all this evil. But that's not what it says. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. I want to submit to you that this is pure grace. God's grace treats us not the way that we deserve. This is the way that we deserve. Be afraid because you have done all this evil. God's grace is better than we deserve. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. And our response should be, how can this be? What is the basis of this grace? Well, we need to hear very clearly, it's not us. The foundation of 
getting something better than we deserve is not rooted in how good we are or how we respond. It is rooted in God. There's a fearlessness of God's people laid out for us in verse 22. I want you to look at verse 22. First of all, we see how could these people be charged, do not be afraid? How could they have this fearlessness before a holy and right God? First, there is a promise made here that God will not forsake His people. God's unconditional election of the people of Israel was not based on how good they were. Why did He choose them? For His great namesake, for His glory. The promise that He will not forsake His people is the beginnings of understanding how they could possibly be fearless in this situation. Do not be afraid, even though they have just seen how serious their sin is. But there's an even deeper foundation laid here in verse 22 of hope and fearlessness. Why will God not forsake His people? The most foundational, deep reason is given in the phrase, for His great name's sake. So at the foundation of our experience of God's mercy and His grace and our ability to not be afraid is the commitment that God has to His own great name. First, He is committed to act for His own namesake, and then for that reason, He is committed to act for His people. In this awesome passage, we see grace flowing to sinners from God's supreme allegiance to His own name. And God's allegiance to His own name is the foundation of His faithfulness to you, His people. That is a firm foundation. There are many who build a foundation of really sand, thinking that my standing before God, my relationship before God is contingent upon me. That foundation will give way and your house will crumble. But if we see that our foundation is built upon God's own namesake, that His faithfulness to us is not contingent on how well we do, but on who He is, what a firm foundation So the upholding and the vindication of God's name is actually the basis for the grace that we experience. Do not be afraid. You have done all this grievous sin. Some of us will just stop right there and go, okay, well, that sounds great. But if that's where where the story ends, this God who you say is so amazing actually looks like a very unjust God. How is it that he could, after seeing and witnessing the the grievous sin of this people, actually then be, continue to be faithful to this people? Like, Like, how does that work? If we're looking at the weights, this is way off. And you would be right to, to start scratching your head and say, 
How is this possible? Where was that vindication most decisively and finally displayed? How is God still a righteous and holy God, and yet forgiving of sin? We see in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. He did not forget about the grievous sins of His people in this chapter of His Word. Christ Jesus paid the debt for all of his own, past, present, future. God is able to say, I am right, I am just, I am completely vindicated. Sin will will be dealt with. It, It must be punished. And it was through my son. God is just and he is righteous. And all those sins that you think that he has just overlooked and there's no justice, we look to Calvary's cross and we see very clearly just how awesome our God is and how it is possible that he has made a way for sinners, rebels, who were once at enmity with him to be in communion and fellowship with him, adopted into his family. It is only through the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Here from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Throughout this week, there's been a worship song. His mercy is more just ringing in my head as I've worked through this passage. Because we are just like the people of Israel. Our sins are many, and His mercy is more. John Newton preached these words many, many years ago. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope? That poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinketh of you? But let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease, our sin, cannot be desperate. And if he casts none out Of those who come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. What I I love about the flow of this passage is that it does not lead to people responding, well, man, it doesn't seem like it matters what we do. We can sin in horrific, wicked ways, and man, we can just have all that kind of glossed over. And immediately our minds should, if you're like me, think about how have, how have people of God responded to this? The Apostle Paul, thinking about the grace of God, responds in Romans 6, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's actually exactly what we see here. You have seen the seriousness of your sin. You have, you have heard of the great mercy and grace of God. And there's nowhere in this passage that says, okay, now go on your way and live however you want. No, there is direction. There is a call to active obedience of the, as the people of God, not in order to earn our standing before God, but in response to the, the great, uh, of our gratitude towards Him and the grace and mercy that He has lavished upon us. Do you not want to honor and glorify the one who has redeemed you from the pit of hell? How do we respond to God's grace that has been poured out on us? As his people, if we know that his ways lead to life, we should say, I want to do that. I want to please my father. And I want to experience as much of him as I can get. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to walk in newness of life. God will not forsake his people. Only fear God and serve Him in loyalty and with all your heart, we hear from this passage. Here is grace greater than all of our sin. We don't try to reverse all the irreversible consequences of our sin in the past, but we gladly accept that His mercies are new every morning and great is His faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we are so, so thankful for your word. Help us today to consider what great things you have done for us. Father, we see so clearly from your word that your ways in all things are governed and guided by your infinite wisdom, your infinite righteousness, your infinite sovereignty, your infinite grace, the infinite worth of your great namesake. Father, help us to stand and see your righteousness, your holiness, and our sinfulness. And Father, I pray that it causes all of us to run once again to Calvary's cross and worship the King of kings who died for our sins. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.